Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Dr. Patrick Lockwood. Patrick is a practicing clinical psychologist and professor and the author of The Fear Problem, How Technology and Culture Have Hijacked Our Minds and Lives. Dr. Lockwood focuses on trauma and addiction treatment. He also has a podcast on YouTube about topics related to mental health, wellness, psychology, and neuroscience called The Psychology Checkup. In this episode, we discuss his background as a psychologist, how he treats patients with unjustified fears, the pros and cons of social media, pineapple on pizza, spoiler alert, he's anti- the oversimplification on both sides of the trans debate, the sex-gender distinction, the over-medication of children, and the tendency for psychology to overcorrect. And now I bring you Dr. Patrick Lockwood. Patrick Lockwood, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. It's great to finally get to talk face-to-face, virtually at least. Uh, we've been Twitter buddies for a while, mm-hmm. and you are the nicest guy on Twitter, despite <laughs> what you think about yourself. <laughs> that's, that's rather strange. Well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not as familiar with your Twitter feed, but yeah. the fact that the nicest guy I know on Twitter, which is Angel, is saying you're the <laughs> nicest guy on Twitter, that, that must mean something. Yeah, it's an inside joke. He yeah, pretends exactly. to be this 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 dark, callous individual, but he is, he's one of the sweetest and kindest, generous people I've, I've met on there. That's rather, this feels very, I feel like I'm being baited into something at this point. And I, I don't know <laughs> if I should be worried about what's about to happen at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, um, for those of us who, who are watching and listening and aren't as familiar with you as they should be, why don't you give us a quick potted bio? Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I am a clinical psychologist in the state of California. I've been practicing for a long time, and I have the luxury of having worked in multiple different types of treatment centers over the course of my career, both prior to and after licensure. My main specialties have been in my career, mostly trauma and substance use disorders. I also have had the luxury of working with the LGBTQ plus community uh, for a number of years as well. I'm also part of that community. So I ran an LGBT rehab called La Fuente for a while. Um, so I have a lot of perspectives on trans folks and working with them professionally as well because of that. And uh, I'm also an adjunct professor at Cal Lutheran, California Lutheran University. And I have the luxury of being able to work with future MFTs and LPCCs and PsyDs and, and just get to train future clinicians and and pretend like I'm a professor for 15 to 20 hours a week. It's wonderful. I feel like most professors are pretending in that way. Perhaps. <laughs> but you're also the author of this book called The Fear Problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's probably the best way into this conversation. Yeah, that's a fair segue for sure. So I wrote a book called <laughs> The Fear Problem in roughly starting 2016, during the 2016 election. And I was focused on how insane our political process had become, just like all the other people you kind of interview, like Height and all these folks, right? Like, literally, I'm the 
of the same flock of thinkers in that regard with, you know, the political tribalism being a problem and all that kind of stuff. And so I saw the same insanity happening that a lot of other people did. And I wrote a book that kind of put fear at the core of the problem. I felt like as a clinical psychologist compared to a, like a research psychologist like Height, my idea was the thing we could actually tangibly influence was not tribalism because that's such a macro meta concept. There's really no way we can influence it. But what we can do, at least from my clinical experience, is we can influence the emotions that drive our stupid behavior, right? And so generally speaking, the emotion that makes us particularly tribal in my book, at least, is fear. And so I, I wrote a number of chapters about how fear shows up at the individual level, the group level, and the national level, and how that, that kind of makes us uh, function in counterproductive ways. And so that book came out roughly in 2018, a couple of years after uh, the election was won, et cetera. And I think it was a pretty inspiring book for the folks who have read it so far because it basically challenged them to just address their fear a little bit better, essentially. And what do you recommend as the best way to address that fear? Well, I mean, that depends upon the particular causes for a lot of people. So, for instance, you know, some people in the political polarization world have very intense fear that they won't belong if they speak out against whatever their group is, right? And so the thing I think I'm notorious for on Twitter is just not liking any particular group of any particular kind. And I seem to be doing just fine. I have two jobs. I have a romantic partner for 10 years. And my life is pretty good, like generally speaking. So I think I think you can pretty much say whatever you want. And there aren't particularly terrifying consequences for most people. So I think that's something to address is like, do you have a fear of not belonging? Do you have a fear of losing life and limb? Like, what's the particular source of your fear? Is your fear built on realistic consequences or is it built on cognitive distortions, et cetera? Because depending upon the particular type of fear, the source of the fear, if it's something you can actually tangibly solve right now, if it's something you can do nothing about, like global warming, for instance, there's just certain types of things you can do something about and certain types of things you really can do nothing about. And so, the book tries to walk people through the different sources of fear in a very kind of practical nuts and bolts kind of way. And I give some simple evidence-based tips for coping with fear. So like, for instance, you know, a lot of people could use a, a coping skill called diaphragmatic breathing. It's a pretty ubiquitous coping skill. However, it's a band-aid. It's not going to solve anything. So if you have a bunch of cognitive distortions about Trump or Biden or global warming or conservatives or liberals or whatever it is, then, you know, those cognitive distortions aren't going to magically go away with just some diaphragmatic breathing. Mm -hmm. But the breathing might help you slow the fuck down to the point that maybe, <laughs> just maybe you don't say something stupid. And what is the relationship between fear and anxiety? Because it seems to be a lot yeah, of anxiety today. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of the yeah. same thing. So I go through, uh, I think it's chapter two in my book, I go through the research that tries to separate the concept of fear from the concept of anxiety. And so far, I don't really believe at this point from reading the neuroscience data that there's a there's a, a good justification to make between the concept of fear and the concept of anxiety. There are some psychologists who do. So there's like Joseph Ledoux, for instance, who's a pretty big researcher. And he would make some like kind of nitpicky differentiators. But for the most part, they're kind of the same systems in the brain. It's the same neurochemicals same kind of threat response experiences. So I really don't think that using those words interchangeably is a problem, personally speaking. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Which is, well, yeah, I guess it reminds me of, I forget where I heard it, but the distinction between, you know, ang anxiety and regret mm -hmm. being, you know, anxiety is worrying about something that hasn't happened yet. And regret is worrying about something that already did happen. And in either case, you can't really do much about it. Mm. Yeah, those are so substantially different things, anxiety and regret. Right. Yeah, but so I guess they all fall under the fear umbrella. Though, I, I right? don't know that fear would in, be involved in regret necessarily, but I believe that maybe a, a sadness or an anger or resentment or something might be involved. I think it's probably a different mm -hmm. affective state, motivational mm -hmm. state. Well, speaking of saying stupid things... Mm -hmm. We are, we know each other because of Twitter. Mm. We know each other because of this social media madness and you see it, I see mm -hmm. it, but what's your, I've always been interested to ask you what your kind of stake is 
in engaging on Twitter, right? As somebody who, who has the clinical experience that you have and the know-how that you have, what, what is it that you see and why, why do you engage in that way, in this, in this platform, this forum that is almost ubiquitously seen as toxic and terrible? Let me see if I can answer that last question first. So <laughs> why am I still on Twitter? So I think there's two classes of reasons. So the first class would be something like there are opportunities to connect with people I wouldn't otherwise be able to connect with. And so just from the purely like logistical opportunistic perspective, I've had really cool experiences of connecting with people like, you know, for instance, our friend Xavier, or I had a conversation with Eric Weinstein, or I've had a conversation with um, a variety of just kind of non-Twitter famous people. And those experiences are particularly eye-opening and gratifying because, you know, as a psychologist, a lot of people will hit me up in my DMs for, you know, referrals for different types of services, or can you help me get my son into treatment, that kind of thing. And so I really feel good about the fact that I'm just able to either be of service to someone or learn something from someone else, right? Like those two things are extremely gratifying for me. And then in full transparency, the other class of reasons is I just have the most fun giving people shit on Twitter. And, <laughs> and it's, it's not professional as a psychologist, but I just don't care at this point. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to mm. be weird and sexual and mean and sarcastic. And I just don't care because it's my personal life. And when it comes to my professional life, uh, ethics is the first and most important thing. But when it comes to my personal life, I am not going to waste my time trying to be professional on Twitter. I am following <laughs> you immediately right now. It's terrible. The memes are really bad. There's a lot of food memes. There's a war against pineapple on pizza that I'm currently waging. Oh my gosh. So I, I found my Twitter soulmate. I found my Twitter soulmate. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. completely, are you for or completely against pineapple on pizza? I think the people that like it are, are okay. deranged evil monsters <laughs> that should be put you in know, camp somewhere. I, this is a, this is a total ridiculous sidebar, but I feel like people who have, people who don't like pineapple on pizza have only had shitty pineapple on pizza. No, 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 I, no. It's a I went, I went on my honeymoon in, I went on my honeymoon in Hawaii mm -hmm. and I was served pineapple on pizza and man, it was awesome. It was so good. <laughs> it was so good. Listen, so it might just be like you're getting shitty ham and shitty. No, dude. I mean, I've, on a shitty no, I've, I've, I've tried it lots of places and I just promise you, I've seen your pictures, right? So the food you promote on your yeah. feet, it's a lot of it looks really good. So I assume you generally have good taste, <laughs> but this now proves yeah. that you're a moral degenerate and I shouldn't be here. Essentially. That's what I just learned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're both in California, so you don't know what good pizza is. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay. I, maybe, maybe. Fine. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I didn't grow generous. up in California, yeah. just so we're clear. Well, unless you grew up in New York or maybe New Jersey. Okay. I didn't. You don't know good fair. pizza. That's fair. <laughs> that stuff, that stuff that they do in Chicago, that's Oh no. Oh, that's that's, that's cake. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a cake. But speaking of moral degenerates, mm -hmm. what about what about and and continuing with the social media thing? Mm -hmm. It's also a way for you, I think, as a psychologist, to see what people are talking mm -hmm. about what people are afraid of, what people are anxious mm -hmm. about and how they're dealing with all those feelings. Mm -hmm. And I would love your insight on, you know, what is it that people are getting wrong? You know, you mentioned, mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, the LGBTQ youth mm -hmm. and people that you work with. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that that's a hot button issue mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. So what's going on and how can we do it better? What do you think? You mean with LGBTQ youth? Well, yeah. just the, the conversation surrounding trans and all yeah. that sort of stuff. What's your what's your what's your uh, what's your take on the way that it's being discussed, especially on social media? Yeah. So you know, the thing I like to do is admit my bias, right? And so my bias very much comes from the convenience sample of the patient pool I've worked with over the course of my career. So just to be clear that a lot of what I'm about to say comes very much from two things, which is number one, my clinical experience is working with people for years, especially trans folks. And number two, just reading the literature and trying to be skeptical and critical of whatever's produced. 
right? So the first thing I would say is that almost every quote unquote side is stupidly oversimplifying whatever the truth actually is about trans kids, trans teen, trans adults, etc. And I say that especially because of all my clinical experiences. I've worked with dozens and dozens of trans folks. And at this point, and obviously it's a convenience sample, it's like a substance use disorder trauma treatment center. So that's a, a wildly convenient sample, like narrow population, right. right? Doesn't represent all trans people. But what I will say is that from those experiences and also reading the literature and trying to match it to my clinical experiences, every side is just completely missing the picture with regard to what exactly is going on inside each of these individuals. And, you know, let's just talk about the idea of, you know, the heterogeneity of the so-called causes, right? So all the different potential causes of gender dysphoria for an individual, right? So there's a lot of research that kind of puts trans folks into three developmental trajectory buckets, right? So the first buckets bucket, which is supposedly the biggest bucket, right, is the folks who they were four or five and around like four or five or even younger, they just knew that something was radically wrong and they never, ever felt comfortable in their body, right? And that's that was their experience from four basically until whenever they finally saw a psychologist, psychiatrist or whatever. So that's one group. And the, their gender dysphoria tends to get worse once they cross through puberty, right? There's the second bucket of people, which I think is the one that's argued about the most, even though I think it's the smallest bucket of people. Personally, just from my clinical experience, maybe the data in different countries is, discounts this, but this is the bucket I think is talked about the most, which is it's the young people who have had gender dysphoria for a, a fairly long period of time. They hit puberty and they end up not identifying as trans anymore. And they end up in either like a gay, lesbian, bisexual, et cetera, gender nonconforming, whatever kind of, you know, self-identity configuration. And I think that's the group that's argued about the most as if they're representative of most trans people. And I know there's different like mm. data sets from different countries that say it's a smaller group, a larger group. And I'll just say from my clinical experience in this very convenient sample here in Southern California, that I don't think that's the biggest group of people. So I'm definitely not friendly with Jack Turbin, and I'm definitely not friendly with the people who think he's insane, but I'm definitely <laughs> on the side of maybe it's way more complicated, right? And so then there's this third group of people that supposedly is what's called rapid onset gender dysphoria, right? So it's like the people who started to develop gender dysphoria around adolescence. And so I'll just tell you from my clinical experience, I think I have met two people of dozens of trans people who fit that bucket if that makes sense. And so each time it's a very complicated process. So I can think of one person, for instance, I've worked with who had a history of serious trauma in childhood, sexual trauma, things like that. They had a serious potential um, PTSD diagnosis because of that, right? They also might've had a personality difference or personality disorder to some degree. And then they might also be on the spectrum. And so all the three things you would see in the literature showed up for that late onset gender dysphoria person. And so the heterogeneity there is also particularly confusing. And because we just don't know anything, I feel very uncomfortable stating anything definitive about that third group of people, right? Because as a clinician, as a professor, as a person who like lives in the world of science, I, I can't make a definitive statement about that group, even though group two and three are argued about the most. We know the least about them at this point, from what I know, both clinically and from the data. So I just feel like the conversation is so focused on groups B and C and not group A. Because I think that for the most part, maybe group A is just kind of doing their thing. Unless they're the activist types in which they're destroying everyone's goodwill, you know. Right. But in, in your experience, the do you see some commonalities in the, I, I don't know if you would use the word etiology of gender dysphoria, um, as you would, you know, say like, other kinds of biological disease. My, my background's in genetics, so I'm, I'm right. using terms that may not be appropriate in psychology. Sure. But is it, you know, are you seeing patterns like mostly some of these end up showing up when people have gone through trauma, when people have gone through or have other comorbidities? Is that even the right word? So, yeah. you know, they have um, certain 
like you said, personality disorders that are accompanying this kind of gender dysphoria? Well, I think, you know, again, if I just look at my clinical sample for years, I would say that generally speaking, those individuals who have all those co-occurring conditions that we might think are causal is probably the smallest group of people I've ever seen. You know, so let's just say for the sake of argument, I've worked with a hundred, you know, trans identified individuals in my career so far. I would say that that maybe represents 10 out of a hundred, which not technically a small percentage from the point of view of epidemiology, but still particularly small compared to groups A and B, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. I would say Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that is not the most common thing I have heard. The most common thing I have seen and heard clinically is the individual always had a persisting gender dysphoria and it wasn't just gender nonconforming behavior. Right. Because there's a there's a pretty stark difference between just gender nonconformity and gender dysphoria, like the self-hatred piece, because something feels wrong is different than, you know, I'm a little weird and people don't like me because of it. Those are radically different experiences. And I can tell you that from working with so many people. So I see mostly the former, which is something was wrong. Like I just knew something was wrong from like very early on. And then. Unfortunately for a lot of people, as happened in my convenience sample, bad things did happen. Sometimes trauma did happen. Sometimes drugs entered the picture earlier than they should have, et cetera. And so then they end up in a place like I used to run. But generally speaking, I don't see it as trauma as causal. That's probably a very, very, very tiny subset of people. It just based upon my experience. I could be wrong. I could be yeah. just having a convenience sample, but that's my experience. You're doing the very good science and scientist thing of couching everything you say in, you know, <laughs> the so far uh, in my experience based on my sample size, which is great. And I think that if more people did that sort of thing, we might be able to reach some clarity. Mm-hmm. But uh, but in, in that same vein, I think it might be good for us to or for you to define our terms here, mm-hmm. um, because I think so much of the problem comes from radically different ideas of what these terms, gender, gender identity, Mm -hmm. sex versus gender Mm -hmm. mean. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to drill down. Uh, So why don't you break it down for us just for the sake of this conversation at the very least? Yeah, I think I'll try to say it the same way I said in one of Xavier's podcasts with Colin Wright. So I think of sex as the set of biological kind of prototypes that allows for effective reproduction. Right. So that's hormone profiles, that's testes and all these kinds of things, the secondary sex characteristics, primary sex characteristics, all these things. Mm -hmm. And so generally speaking, there's a pretty strong correlation between one's sex and one's gender. Right. And so gender being more Mm -hmm. in a more modern time, at least the kind of the way I described it on the podcast with Colin and Xavier was it's kind of like the personality trait variant of sex, essentially. So it's kind of like Mm. what you would think of as temperamental expressions of your sex based upon how you're physically built, Mm. right? So I think of it no differently. I think of gender no differently than like trait openness or trait conscientiousness or whatever it is. And as we all know, or I think most psychologists Mm. know, most psychological traits are fairly heritable if they're pretty pronounced baseline traits, like personality traits, like, you know, openness and conscientiousness. However, that heritability doesn't even get close to like 50% of the variance, even if you'd like smush them together. So that's not everything. Traits have to be expressed somehow, right? There's developmental trajectories that differ among people, et cetera. But generally speaking, I think of so-called gender identity as this temperament-like experience of your sex. Mm-hmm. And in that podcast that you were referring to, one of the debates that you had with Colin, which I find really interesting, Mm-hmm. was about this concept of being born in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. And Colin's take yeah. on it was that there was no such thing as being born in the wrong body as that's actually based on stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And you, disagree, you, you disagreed with that. Can you expound on your position and why you disagree with it? Yeah. So there's this fascinating line of research that people argue over, right? And I think I'm in a smaller camp at this point, just based on my clinical experience, right? So the the phrase born in the wrong body is a very philosophically messy phrase, 
And so let me just say that up front that I'm not here to debate like the philosophical ramifications of what that means. Like is yourself separate from who you physically are, right? I I don't have the wherewithal mentally to do that. All I'm going to say is (laughs) when you look at the data on like brain differences, right? There's a very good case to be made that a person who has a quote unquote male biological sex, but there are certain aberrations or differences in how the brain develops with regard to, let's just say, the process of interoceptive awareness, right? And so let's just say parts of your parietal cortex and other parts of your brain have an androgen sensitivity or an androgen insensitivity that's not typical for most males or typical for most females, right? What I'm imagining based upon the limited, it's very limited, but the limited data we have is that there is such a mismatch between various parts, morphological characteristics of the brain, right? Like gross densities of different types of neurons, white matter, and then also the expression of various types of receptors for androgens and things like that in the brain, that there's such a mismatch between the physical body and the way the brain develops that it feels as if you're embodied one way, but then your temperamental sense of self is somewhat at odds with how your physical body looks. So that's the only case I'm trying to make. And I I think it's a spectrum. I don't think it's a dichotomous, you're this or you're that kind of thing. I think it's, you ask, you survey a thousand trans person's brains and you would see different densities of different types of receptors, pre and post transition and all these kinds of things. But I would be willing to bet based upon my clinical experience that pre-transition, pre-hormones, there were already substantial differences in androgen sensitivity and things like that, that go way beyond the typical gender non-conforming experience and what that brain might look like. Mm. So that's the only thing I was trying to say. I doubt I said it effectively, <laughs> but that's what I was trying to say. This makes a lot of sense. But as a psychologist, how do you account for environmental factors? So this idea that like, you know, the explosion of certain kinds of certain genres of videos on TikTok and Tumblr and places like that that can create an environment where people, you know, based on, say, social fads or something, start mm-hmm. to identify a certain way. How do you account for that? Or do you even think that's a phenomenon? So you're talking about, broadly speaking, what we call contagion in social psychology and clinical psychology. Yeah. And so, you know, the thing about that is I, I'm sure it's a real thing because we have lots of data on, you know, eating disorders over history and other kinds of yeah. obvious issues, right? And so. I'm perfectly willing to say it exists to a very limited degree for trans folks in the same way it exists for other issues. So I think, I don't remember who, I think it was Ross Mansa I was talking to on Twitter. And I love him. He's great. He's, he's great at pushing back on things. And this dude eventually cornered me. And I think I gave an estimate of like maybe 5% of young people who are already having like the borderline personality, autism spectrum, PTSD, sexual trauma, hate my body thing that people think causes Mm -hmm. gender dysphoria for some young people. I would say maybe 5% of that population, if that might be influenced substantially by social contagion. Because if you look at like the online little niche groups where everyone's talking about transition and stuff, it's very small groups of people. Mm -hmm. It's not like if there's, If there's 3.5 million trans people in the United States, I would seriously be willing to argue that maybe, just maybe, it's like 10 or 20,000 kids, if that. If if even that. Mm. I I doubt it's even that. But I would say 5% is the highest estimate I'm willing to agree with. Just, again, based upon my clinical experience and the reading of the literature, despite how quality the literature is. Mm -hmm. But then how do you explain when when schools... Um, when you have gender dysphoria suddenly increasing by, you know, magnitude such as 3000% in a single school. I read about this and that it happened in Sweden, for example. Sure. And so if if that's true, right, you know, in the sense that like the data was collected accurately and all those scientific caveat things. Sorry, it's 1,500%. Yeah, that's a lot. Now, the, the raw number might not be huge, right? It might not be a lot, but that's just a statistical trick, right? So the thing for me is always going to be everything is multivariate, right? And as a geneticist, I'm sure you know that everything is multivariate. There's no such thing as the universe. Except Mendelian. Except in very rare cases, right? 
But what we're talking about in psychology is always multivariate, has to be, right? Because there's no mm-hmm. single univariate thing that predicts any behavior or any trait of a human psyche, et cetera. So my thing is that seemingly very large increase in people who are openly identifying, there's probably at least three things happening. So number one, there's probably um, some greater acceptance or something, or there's social pressure. Number two, there's probably some confusion, and this is the convenient label. Number three, there's probably some contagion. Number four, there's probably some other things going on that I can't necessarily articulate very clearly, but it probably involves some variety of mental health issues, right? So it could be any number of things, but I just, again, not actually being able to work with these people professionally, I can't really say specifically what's happening because we're kind of looking from 30,000 feet and, you know, my career and my experience is built on the five feet away experience, you know? Mm -hmm. I I really like that. And I think it points to one of the major issues, which is, you know, of course, we we mentioned that this is going on in social media mm-hmm. and people are going back and forth, but it's actually much more serious than that, right? Because we're also talking about um, school policy and people trying to change laws and people trying to change the structure of certain institutions. Mm-hmm. And then also we have actual institutions like the APA, mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty significantly changing things around in order to accommodate a particular perspective on this, which, you know, we just spent the last 20, 25 minutes or so talking about how complicated and nuanced and impossible it is to make concrete statements about. So we do here. I mean, (laughs) it it seems like some people are going a hundred miles an hour when, you know, everything you've said thus far shows that we shouldn't even be in the car yet. Well, you know, that's the thing is right. Like my experience in the world is kind of very narrowly defined through the lenses of my, you know, my personal life being a bisexual dude, uh, my personal life growing up in the South and then moving to California. And then also my, my professional life, right? So being a clinical psychologist who works in, you know, substance use disorder treatment, works with LGBT folks, et cetera. And so I can really speak effectively on those things and what systemically we should do about those things. But with regard to something that feels to me very impossible, like trying to wrangle the American Psychological Association, that's, I mean, that's nuts, you know? I mean, those (laughs) people Can can you explain what's going on with them? Because I'm I'm not familiar. Go ahead, What's going on with the APA? Oh, no, please. You're the psychologist. (laughs) I mean, I haven't heard anything recent, so I don't know if you're, you were referencing something recent. No, no. But just, yeah, gen- well, what I'm speaking generally about is, is what, what many people feel like is this ideological capture of these institutions mm. and the way, you know, I mean, you just said wrangling the APA. It, it seems like a particular cohort of people have wrangled the mm-hmm. APA and, yeah. you know, that, that's the concern anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, from a, just a logistical perspective, the only thing people can truly do is try to, you know, gain positions of power, Right. And so if you really do feel strongly about any of these things we're talking about, then your job should be to wrangle positions of power or at least try to influence the people with positions of power. And so, you know, my experience in life has been to just completely avoid those experiences unless there's really something that I can actually tangibly do. So, like, I'm happy, you know, if the the APA wants me on their board or something, I'm happy to be there, but I don't think they like me because I don't like them. And so... My guess would be I'm never going to be on the board of the American Psychological Association. However, what I will do, what's in my control, right? Because that's the background I come from, the recovery background. It's like, what's Mm -hmm. in my control? So what's in my control, what can I do right here, is I can run a treatment center more ethically. I can be more nuanced in how I deal with people, more respectful and more thoughtful, right? Mm -hmm. I can try to have these conversations better, despite my personality flaws. I can do whatever I can that's in my control here, right? I focus on that yeah. because I think that that is the attitude that generally speaking promotes personal and like social mental health, right? Because that's my main concern, mm-hmm. notwithstanding the terrible things well, I said well, about pineapple on pizza. <laughs> I mean, well, I see that. That makes a lot of sense kind of as, a, as an individual, right? You know, the, it's that 
aphorism or whatever, you know, uh, the things that I can control, the things that I can't control, I accept. And, you know, the wisdom to know the difference, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the problem, of course, is that those of us who are highly motivated and do assume positions of power then have positions of influence. Mm -hmm. And that influence has an effect on me as an individual. Mm -hmm. Or if I were a parent, I have kids at school. It really matters what's going on and what's being taught to them in school. Sure. And so we can't necessarily just just say, well, I'm going to deal with what I can control and what I can control is myself. Because, of course, there are other factors. We're all connected to one another Absolutely. in these structures and systems. So, Yeah. I mean, listen, if you want to get on your, there? your school's board, get on your school's board for sure. Go to every, <laughs> go to every parent teacher meeting, right? Like I encourage mm -hmm. everyone who's worried about these topics to do whatever is in their control to influence the powers that be, right? Whether you're for or against or this or that, like use your voice, go be involved. I think one of our serious problems in the United States, especially, is that we are so disconnected from our communities. It's like everyone lives at home. No one goes and hangs out with their kids at school, right? No one's involved in the, like, I'll give you a for instance. It's a very biased for instance, but I just went to city council where my treatment center is. And I spoke on behalf of my treatment center and talked about the problems of drugs. And at that city council meeting, the city of 80,000 people, there were, I think, five people there. Right. Now, maybe it doesn't matter because it's a, this particular city I'm in is Westlake Village. So it's like not kind of like rich, fancy, who gives a shit? Everything's fine. Everything's paid for. But like, generally speaking, you should be going to the city council. If you have a problem with the way your schools are run, you should be going to the school board meetings. You should be going to all these things, right? So advocate for sure. But as for me and my people, I'm just going to try and influence the people that I know to be better, right? That's what I'm going to do because I'm already killing myself in some ways to help the world. So I'm, I'm good on going on marches and fighting online. Like, I'm just not going to do that unless I'm getting paid or something at this point. Because I, I overextend myself. I do a lot of for free stuff to help people. Yeah that I don't talk about publicly because I've, bragging just makes you look like a, nar a giant narcissist. I don't want to be that, right? <laughs> so like, I'm not going to go to school boards and fight, you know? That's not me. The counter argument to that is if, if you told people all the great stuff that you do for free, you might inspire them to do the same thing. Yeah, but that, that's, that's got to be more of a personal thing though, you know? That's true. I, I do think that the <laughs> participation in these school boards and running for, mm -hmm. you know, superintendents, school councils, you're, you're starting to see that a bit more. I, I think parents mm -hmm. in this country mm -hmm. seem to be, there, there seems to be some distrust going on with, you know, what's happening on in schools. And partly that is related to what they're seeing on social media, viral mm -hmm. clips that are posted, um, which kind of actually goes back to your, your book about mm -hmm. uh, the fear problem, right? Because mm -hmm. they're they're seeing these clips, uh, whether it's teachers just posting their own TikToks, talking about some radical stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or these very confrontational school board meetings. Mm -hmm. And so they're motivated now. There's this sense of assault on our, on our children and, mm -hmm. and their futures. And so nothing gets parents more motivated. I mean, this issue swung an entire election. You know, mm -hmm. the governor of, of Virginia got elected on this issue. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing parents participating more and more. But mm -hmm. I do, on that note, want to go back to kind of the d details in your book, because mm -hmm. the, the subtitle of your book is How Technology and Culture Have Hijacked Our Minds and Lives. And you talked mm -hmm. about how you use social media in a very positive way, and, and it's fun for you. But, but there seems to be this dark side, and you wrote a whole book on it. So what, what is that dark side? I think the dark side that I'm generally referring to is how people take these tools like social media and they make them, I think, more important than they ought to be to be healthy, right? So again, my thing with Twitter, now I'm not saying my life is how anyone should engage with Twitter because it really works for my personality, not for most people's. But for me, I'm either there to kind of like read some new papers that come out, meet some cool people, or just shitpost about whatever the hell is interesting that day. That is my 
entire use of it. And I honestly have no care or concern if you're upset with me, not you too personally, but just like the average person who sees the crazy thing I said, I just don't care because it's a social media platform. It's not my clinical practice. It's not the treatment center I run. It's not the, you know, the classes I teach. It's me having fun. Okay. And so generally speaking, for me, that is what is effective. I don't need to vent on Twitter for the most part. I don't need to find community on Twitter because I have in-person community. So I think what's happening is some people who are lacking community, some people who are lacking other coping skills and other resources for resilience are using these apps, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or whatever, to fill those voids of sort in a way that's just not good for you because there's just no mammal that fills those voids that way, essentially. Mm. Because like we love this in-person experience. The reason this isn't just a phone call is because you want to see me while I say ridiculous things, not just hear me, (laughs) right? And so the idea would be that we really like this 360-degree holistic experience as mammals. We're designed, we're hardwired for that, right? And you just don't get that by tweeting at somebody. You get like a proxy pseudo version of that. And so it's never fully gratifying. And that's why it's hijacking Mm -hmm. because you can keep chasing the idea that it will almost be like real life. Yeah. I'm reminded of uh, this study that I I read about, I think, in in psychology classes many, many years Mm -hmm. ago at this point uh, in college. But they did this experiment with, I think, chimpanzees. Mm or no, actually maybe monkeys where they, they had, they removed a, a bunch of monkeys from their mother mm-hmm. and they created a kind of wire, like coat hanger, oh, wire Harry Harlow, yeah. figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and put that in one cage with a bunch of them. And then in another cage, there was just this kind of amorphous mm-hmm. pile of fur mm-hmm. kind of thing. And to see, you know, they wanted to see the attachment type stuff that would happen. Yeah. And, um, they, the, the group of monkeys in one cage, correct me if, I, if I'm misremembering, but the group of monkeys in one cage that had the wireframe kind of figure that looked very much like a monkey, it was just this empty wireframe, they ignored it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other cage where it was this pile of, of fabric that didn't look like a monkey at all, they attached themselves to and were using it for comfort. Yeah, that's that's, And it, it, it seems like Twitter is a kind of wireframe version of, of community. Yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the gist of Harry Harlow's studies. And, you know, we definitely have mm-hmm. a problem, I think, which is why would we want to settle for less? Right. I know that there's a lot of social yeah. cost to trying to make friends in person. You know, it's, it takes a lot of energy. You know, it's not even easy to connect with people for many folks, especially if they already feel socially or emotionally disenfranchised. So I understand why like very sick people or very disenfranchised people find community online. Because it's the low cost, safest version of trying to do what would be probably better in real life. Yeah. But it, it's also because certain certain parameters are kind of, certain dials are tuned differently, right? So if you're a socially awkward person, maybe if you have a speech impediment, like you stutter or something like that, or you're not comfortable with the way you look, mm-hmm. those sorts of things take a backseat or they can take a backseat to maybe if you're, if you're, if you're a witty typist, right? Like if I'm much better at texting people and, and writing things out than I am speaking, mm. I, I feel like I can catch up with my own brain mm-hmm. with my 10 fingers mm-hmm. faster than I can with my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely come off more charming online, I think, mm. than I do, <laughs> than I do in person. Mm. So, you know, stuff like that, right? Like people who are kind of shut-ins, it allows them a way to connect with people that maybe isn't available elsewhere. So there's, there's that too, that that's kind of a, uh, an issue in and of itself. Right. Yeah, that could be. And it, and it seems like, it, it seems like maybe we've, we've lost sight of, of the, the imbalance that that creates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I wrote the book you know? for sure. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Is your thesis along the lines of what E.O. Wilson said about the problem with humanity that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Is that 
the crux mm. of what you're arguing in the book. Yeah, it's it's of a kind, right? Like that, and, and so my hope is to you know generally align with that thinking while not endorsing all that because again, you know, like the evolution of the brain is much more complicated than that. So the Paleolithic mind thing is it's a bit of an oversimplification, right? And so I wasn't want to try and be as specific as humanly possible. But yeah, but if you look at like our basic threat detection hardware in the brain or the six prototypes of a threat response or whatever. Yeah, that's that's not changed in hundreds of thousands of years. We see in the tiniest of mammals that have exist for millions of years before us, the same six prototypes of a threat response. You know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, submit, all that stuff. That's That's universal across all mammals, right? So it clearly is a very ancient thing. Whereas a lot of our psychological hardware and software is actually very updated compared to the Paleolithic era. Right. And so it's, it's, mm. it's kind of yes. And right. It's, it's kind of yes. And is the way I'd like to say that. Yeah. And, and tribalism as well, I'm which is to. very hardwired because mm-hmm. of, well, just it's, it's adaptive advantage. It provided us in, you know, when trying to survive and which still we're seeing mm. get supercharged. Yes. Yeah. It still does. Yeah. 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 For sure. So how, how, how can we, <laughs> What do we do here, Patrick? I want to overcome these things because this is this is madness. I think we, you, we can all agree that we're we're amidst madness, and it'd be great if we had some concrete things that we can do to check ourselves, check each other, right? Help each other out through this stuff because we can't all DM you on Twitter for free advice. <laughs> yeah, that would be scary. Um, I think, personally speaking. When you said the phrase, check ourselves, that might be where my head goes first, especially as a clinician, right? Because generally speaking, you can have social and family and structural accountability. And I think that's very important. I think that there's many, many, many good cases to be made for better social accountability, political, financial, structural accountability in this country, in many countries. That being said, Mm -hmm. My expertise and my abilities, my skills, et cetera, as a person, as a clinician, really focus on the individual, right? So what can the individual do better? I talked about that in the book. So how do you check yourself effectively, right? How do you challenge yourself? So like Sam Harris talks all about intellectual honesty as like the foundation of a a person who is trying to make the world better, right? And so I try to be intellectually honest, as you've heard me try to do throughout this conversation. And I think that everyone could use a little more, you know, intellectual honesty, epistemic humility, et cetera, about what we actually do know, right? Because like, again, back to the trans discussion we had for however many minutes, there's just so much we think we know, but we don't quite fully know, right? And so it's very Mm -hmm. tempting to say, well, I'm afraid of this consequence, so I'm going to act as if I know, right? And it's perfectly valid to have the fear about the consequence. If certain legislation is made, if certain medical choices are made, the fear is completely valid. The problem we face is when we act as if we know, we can overshoot the mark very easily. We can overcorrect. And overcorrecting is a natural you know, response that all mammals have, right? But like generally, I'm very wary of overcorrecting because it's just been so many times in clinical psychology, especially over the last hundred years where we thought we knew something yeah. and then we overcorrected and we just destroyed so many valuable yeah. like ideas and concepts by overstating like the serotonin hypothesis. It was so overstated by psychology and psychiatry that now everyone and their brother thinks depression is because of serotonin and it has almost nothing to do with it in most cases. It's just a thing that happens to correlate. Then why do we prescribe the drugs that then why do we prescribe SSRIs? Because SSRIs are very effective at altering mood on a short-term basis. Mm. And so when a person is acutely depressed or has major depression and they're acutely distressed about it, it's great for altering your mood. Like, so for severe major depression, you definitely need to be on some kind of medication to get you out of the hole that you're in physiologically and psychologically. But that's not going to cure anything. And no sane psychiatrist says that. Right. Right. It's just that generally speaking, the medications affect symptoms in a very transitory way, in a way that's very valuable for a lot of people, especially when they have vegetative depression. But 
that doesn't mean that they are the solution because serotonin is not the cause, right? They're just one of many variables. Back to that multivariate analysis thing. They're one of many, many, many variables that reinforce low mood, anhedonia, amotivation, et cetera. So then how did we overcorrect? You, you said like this, how, this was an example. Yeah, you said that the serotonin hypothesis was an yeah, example. Because I was actually yes. going to ask you for examples of how we have overcorrected in psychology. Yeah, yeah. So psychiatry has overcorrected by giving all sorts of people who don't need antidepressants antidepressants, oh, I see. for instance. Right. Yeah, and they, 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 they yeah. you know, they pin it on like the star D trials or whatever. And the truth of the matter is the data is not that clear that it's the effective first slash second step. Right. And so the problem we face is, again, we, we have univariate thinking when we need multivariate thinking. And mm-hmm. so psycho- psychiatry is overcorrected with antidepressants. Psychology has overcorrected by giving everybody and their brother therapy for every little thing. And most people right. who are just anxious or sad or whatever it is don't need therapy. You just need some good oh, friends. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of people. Wow. Okay. So for instance, That's... I'll give you a, a really simple for instance from the literature. So there are all these standardized screening measures for depression. So there's like the Beck Depression Inventory. There's the PHQ-9. There's the HAMD, the CESD. There's a number of them. And so there's this correlation that's just getting bigger and bigger over time, which is the more frequently you use these measures, the more you overestimate the person's symptoms and impairment from their sadness, their depression. So basically, uh-huh. these measures, while valid for screening purposes, are not valid for diagnostic purposes. And so many people are, are being overtreated in some cases, and then other groups of people are being undertreated. And so there's this overcorrection that misses a, a number of important variables, like lifestyle variables that do absolutely help with depression. Whereas mm. generally speaking, you know, there's an undercorrection for certain groups of people who are just disenfranchised from even getting help. And so it's, it's kind of both. Yeah. Kudos for you, you know, to stay for saying that actually. Um, that's, that's really, I've never heard, you know, someone who's a professional psychiatrist or psychologist actually say something like that. Um, yeah, that everyone needs therapy. <laughs> uh, that's the first for me. Right, right. But there's no way to say I don't need therapy without sounding like you actually do. This is right. sounds like you're in denial. <laughs> it's a Kafka trap <laughs> of true. sorts, right? Yeah. It's really a Kafka trap. You know? Yeah, it's true. But it's, it's, it's true. true. Like you're- <laughs> regular, listen, life sucks often for most of us. And so when life sucks, that doesn't mean you have a mental illness. Right, right. right. So I'm, I'm guessing I, what, what, what do you think about the, the, you know, the situation now where we're kind of, prescribing ADHD to so many kids. It seems like kids are very medicated today. I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's tough, right? Because I think in, in some cases, those medications are particularly effective. And then in other cases, they're effective, but not for the reasons that we want them to be effective, right? And so like you take anyone yeah. and you put them on Adderall and they're just going to be way oh more attentive and way more productive. Like any of us, all three of us, if we took some Adderall right now, <laughs> I love a great it. time, <laughs> we would all be like super yeah. focused and on the ball and creative and expansive and attentive. But like a lot of kids don't need that. Some do. Right. And so it's yeah. the problem that psychology and psychiatry has always faced since, you know, Greisinger's time in the 1800s and Freud in the later 1800s and, you know, Kreiplin in the early 1900s, it's the same problem that my profession has faced, which is what's a real valid diagnosis? How have you determined that's a real valid diagnosis? And so on and so forth. And that's a thing that my profession and psychiatry are going to have to figure out continually because cultures change, diets change, lifestyle factors change, systems change, all sorts, many things change. So our criteria have to shift with the times, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that for ADHD specifically, the criteria haven't changed too much over the last 20 or so years. However, I think that there are basically two big kind of warring factions in psychology and psychiatry. Some saying it's overdiagnosed, and some saying it's underdiagnosed. So for instance, we know for females, typically speaking, they're typically given a diagnosis of the inattentive type of ADHD. That being said, we might be missing some externalizing symptoms for these individuals and that's a huge problem, right? We might be calling their, mm. you know, internalizing symptoms 
something wrong, or it might be major depression mm. or something. So there's a lot of misdiagnosis, I, I think, see. for females. And then for males, yeah. a lot of hyperactive behavior could be multivariate in its cause, right? So sometimes the meds will help despite the causal problems. But generally speaking, putting that particular label on it carries all sorts of social weight that I think we could debate about. I would much more rather talk about the causes and if we have the best treatment for the particular causes, you know, and it's just, it's so hard to say from 30,000 feet. Now, if you put me in front of somebody, I can give you a much more informed and thoughtful opinion. Mm. So there's a through line in this entire conversation that I'm saying, which is on the one hand, human beings are, who mean beings are complicated and situations are complicated. Psychology is complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, univariate analyses, univariate approaches to solving problems is not a good idea because almost nothing is univariate in its cause, in its causes, right? And, or its solutions. And on the other hand, we have norms and institutions and ways of doing things that are almost univariate by necessity, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I remember talking to a friend about how I don't, I don't feel very comfortable at protests. I don't do well at protests mm. because there are very few things that I would, I would feel comfortable writing on a sign and holding that sign mm-hmm. up, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I believe in equality, right? Like that fits on a sign. Mm-hmm. But most of my opinions, I need a paragraph or, or 800 words at least to, to couch everything and yeah. bulletproof everything yeah. and address the nuance and complexity, but that doesn't work at a protest, right? right? You can't have a chant that takes 45 minutes to, to recite. You know, you, you have to be able to say the thing a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, you know, political processes where it, it's all like, you know, identify the enemy and then the whole campaign becomes about attacking the enemy, destroying the enemy. Uh, and we have ideological warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate using that language, but we have these ideological conflicts that are reduced to that you know you mentioned mm-hmm. it how do we how do we reconcile these two things we have that we're you know we have the wrong tools for the wrong for the wrong problems and well i think i don't know i don't know what we can do <laughs> yeah but i think you're generally outlining the issue which is we're using the wrong tools yeah. for the wrong problem so our job should be collectively when we have these conversations to talk about the correct tools mm-hmm. for the correct problem right so like right. i'm telling you from my experience the correct tools that I can see working for certain types of issues are individually focused, right? Because that's where my expertise lies as a professional, right? right? And so I think that everyone should be having various conversations about what individualistically do I need to do? What collectively with my family and my immediate community do I need? And then on the more kind of broad scale perspective of things, you know, what do we need to do as a collective group, right? So how are you trying to influence your city, your school board, et cetera? If you have the time, the energy, and the resources to do that, because some don't. Some people have to work three jobs in order to function. And so right. asking them to go protest on behalf of whatever is just insane, right? Right. So for the people right. that do have the time, the energy, and the resources to be involved at greater and greater levels of societal organization, great. Just try to do it thoughtfully and try to inform your opinions by people who actually give a shit and who actually aren't trying to just win a fight. Right. Not that trying to win a fight's bad, but maybe like, and this is, (laughs) this is not about me per se, but there are thousands of people like myself who are willing to be thoughtful, who are willing to say, this is what I know. And this is what I don't know. This is the limit of what I'm saying. Finding more people like that to inform the big fighters out there would be wonderful. I would love to be a consultant for Elon Musk or Joe Biden or Peter Thiel or whoever the fuck (laughs) wants my time because I will make sure that they stop speaking the way they speak. You know, like uh, my, yeah, wouldn't that be my thing in life is like, let's just try to be more cautious about what we're about to say. Minus me cursing and stuff. Like generally speaking, <laughs> like my thing is maybe you don't need to say it that way. Right. Mm. And there's so many people, if they just had someone in their corner, like a good political advisor, who's like, listen, you want to say this? I understand why you want to say this. It's not that simple. So let's say these five more complicated things, as opposed to this one simple thing. 
and be okay with the consequences. And lose the election. And lose the election. I think that's... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's what okay. people would say. 100%. Yeah, that's true. 100%. <laughs> I'm well aware of that. Now that. That gets to the problem that I was trying to point to there is, is the, the direct consequence of this is you won't be heard as often or as much and you won't be followed Yep. Uh, it, you know, it's easier to rise yep. and it's faster to rise yep. if you're hyperbolic, if you're yep. simplistic. Totally. Yeah, but I think that the, the tension is also, that's true, Angel, but there's an, the tension is also between people who are oriented as, as clinicians, you know, psychologists, uh, doctors, they, they actually deal with people one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And people who are like the scientist engineer types who deal with systems and who think in terms of, Mm-hmm. How do I model something mm-hmm. and draw a general rule for society so that we can understand things better at scale, right? Because at the end of the day, we, you know, even the earlier conversation we were having about, about the trans conversation, you know, you, you always couch things in, well, this is how I experience it with my, uh, with, with my patients. And so this is what I know. You're very careful about that. But I, I remember this is the classic um, dichotomy between, you know, like bench and bedside. As a scientist, you're trying to systemize things and 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 build our knowledge base. But mm-hmm. as a as a clinician, you're optimized to care for the person. Mm-hmm. And so you are dealing with these tensions in societies. Like the people that you're talking about, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, are trained as engineer types. Mm-hmm. Are trained to think in terms of systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, even I see that with you know the scientist mind. Like I'm far mm-hmm. more interested in sort of um, talking about like game theory and how all of this, like Robert Trivers work, Robert Trivers work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. thinking about at that level versus the, the human, the human level, I rather think at the level of humanity. So yeah. it's, I think that's where that tension also comes in. It's not just the institutions, but it's how people are trained given their background to, to deal with the world. Yeah. And so a lot of people that, that, you know, we're, we're seeing approaching this discourse that way that mm-hmm. you're referring to um, ends up looking like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know that there, again, it's what Angel said about like the right tool for the right job, right? Like literally speaking at the systems level of viewing things, whether it's like your city or the nation or yeah. whatever, you have to play a different game and use different tools. But what I'm arguing right. and what I said earlier is that what if we use those tools slightly differently, right? Over time. Right. Because you should be able to use rhetoric to get what you want. That's what politicians do. That's what good CEOs do. I run a business, so I have to be able to use rhetoric to inspire my team and so on and so forth. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that's bad because rhetoric is useful. What I agree that is probably not helping us is the type of rhetoric we use on a regular basis. So what if we could like gradually over time, insidiously even change our rhetoric because if you make too big of a change people collapse and go back to what's comfortable right so what if we just Mm -hmm. ever so insidiously you know infected people with the idea of speaking just a little bit more nuanced over time you know very manipulatively right very machiavellian just like ever so subtly (laughs) introduced nuance in every every tenth tweet you know what i mean Just like we start to kind of the frog in the pot of slowly boiling water, we just eventually make it a rhetorical device to be nuanced. Uh (laughs) Just a thought. Well, uh, that's certainly my approach. I'm I I do my best, and I I love the way that you do it. You're you're. uh, I see through the facade, sir. You are not. You are not. uh, You are not nefarious as you claim to be. You know, he loved. I think. I think it's Sarah Hader who has on her Twitter bio, aspiring supervillain. I feel like that belongs on your Twitter bio. Really? But Hmm. because that's how you present yourself, but you're not at all. Really? You're not at all. I haven't been terrible this entire time. (laughs) No, you've been fantastic. And, Hmm. um, you know, it's, it's been awesome to talk to you. And, um, I want to make sure to ask the, the last question that we ask all our guests, which is that at fair, our approach here or our goal is to provide what we call a pro-human approach mm-hmm. to the issues that we've been talking about. And it's a lot of the substance of what we've been discussing this whole time. Mm-hmm. But just to get a kind of a bite-sized version of it from you, how do you conceptualize that phrase pro-human? And how do you think people, everyday people can embody that, that philosophy or that approach in their everyday lives? 
I think of the phrase pro-human when I hear it. I think of it meaning something like having an awareness of the need to focus on our shared humanity. That's what I think about. So you could call that in short, maybe compassion or something like that. I don't know. But it's more like we need to pay attention to the fact that we're all the same here, essentially. And then how would you act on that is the second question. And I just, I don't, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, I, the way that I do it is I try to be funny because I think we all like to laugh. And so sometimes I'm actually good at that. And sometimes I get a laugh and then sometimes I'm pretty terrible. And things just land flat. <laughs> um, but not everyone has an interest in being funny. Some people, humor is a very kind of rare thing for them. It's like a dessert. They rarely have it. But some like me, I just come from the, uh, the background of like, let's just have a good time because life is really fucking short, you know? So that's how I try. Yeah. That's perfect. That's perfect. Let's all try to be funnier. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Patrick Lockwood, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.